0: Hey there, we have some amazing new episodes coming up for you later this week and next week, but I wanted to drop into your podcast feed with another select episode with one of our favorite authors. I'm excited to reshare this 15-minute matrix episode where Emily Nagoski maps sexual pleasure. Emily Nagoski is a gem. After listening or re-listening to this episode, head over to the Functional Nutrition Alliance YouTube page to find a recap of Emily's book, Burnout, that she co-authored with her sister and that we recently read as part of our Functional Nutrition Alliance book club. But like I said, this episode is all about sexual pleasure. And as Emily says... Pleasure can only happen in the context where the brain is able to perceive the world as safe, fun, and sexy. So let's dive in and find out why. Hey everybody,
1: this is Emily Nagoski, and today we'll be mapping sexual pleasure on the 15-Minute Matrix.
0: Welcome to the 15-Minute Matrix. I'm Andrea Nakayama, functional medicine nutritionist and your host. This is the podcast that brings you bite-sized insights and lessons on how to use the most important tool in functional medicine and functional nutrition. Today on the 15-Minute Matrix, I'll be chatting with Emily Nagoski. Emily Nagoski's mission in life is to teach women to live with confidence and joy inside of our bodies. Emily began her career as a sex educator in 1995 when she became a peer health educator at the University of Delaware. She has an MS in Counseling Psychology with minors in Cognitive Science and Philosophy and completed a clinical internship at the Kinsey Institute Sexual Health Clinic. Emily continued on to earn a PhD in Health Behavior with a concentration in Human Sexuality. She worked for eight years as a lecturer and director of wellness education at Smith College before transitioning to full-time writing and speaking. She has extensive specialized training in bystander intervention, motivational interviewing, and cultural inclusivity, including race, gender, and class And Emily is the author of the book, Come As You Are, the surprising new science that will transform your sex life, which explores the whys and hows of women's sexuality based on groundbreaking research and brain science. And today I'm very pleased that we get to share the many benefits of sexual pleasure. Emily, welcome to the 15 Minute Matrix. Thank you so much for having me. I am so excited to talk about sexual pleasure and to really map it and see what it does to the body, for the body and what the brain is telling us. So when you're talking about sexual pleasure, how do you even define that? Oh,
1: pleasure is actually beautifully complex because it depends on the context where it's happening. So a sensation that you experience during an erotic encounter when your brain is already in a state to receive every sensation as pleasurable, as sexy, as connected, that exact same sensation in a non-erotic context may Mm. not feel good or even be actively painful. The nucleus accumbens shell is the part of the brain responsible for this. There's amazing research by... Kent Berridge, Morton Kringelbach, and that crew of affective neuroscientists that show that when the brain is in a calm, relaxed, peaceful, unthreatened state of mind, 90% of the nucleus accumbent shell is devoted to approach motivation, reception of sensations. So almost anywhere that it gets stimulated, it'll result in sort of curious exploration behaviors in the rat in the experiment. If you put that rat in a threatened, unsafe state of mind by like turning on the lights really bright and making their a lot of noise, 90% of the nucleus accumbens shell becomes devoted to avoidance behaviors, escape, even in response to stimuli that in a different context, it might have responded to with uh, approach and curiosity. Mm. But because the context is different, our brains respond in the opposite way. So pleasure happens in and only in a context where our brain is able to perceive the world as a safe, fun, sexy, pleasurable place. When we prioritize sexual pleasure, we're not prioritizing touch me this way, don't touch me there. We're prioritizing creating a context that allows almost any sensation to be experienced as pleasurable.
0: I love that. It really comes back to something you talk about beautifully in the book, which is trust and how stress, Mm. depression, anxiety, trauma, attachment, how these things really erode trust.
1: Yet trust is absolutely essential for some i mean it's essential for a whole lot of relationship factors but for sex in particular i mean you might be taking off some clothes that you don't usually take off in front of other people you might be letting somebody see and even touch parts of you that almost no one on earth ever gets to see or Mm. touch you might be putting parts of your body inside parts of another person's body or letting someone put a part of their body inside a part of your body. Trust is absolutely essential for this. If you take off some clothes and your partner's response is anything short of wow and hooray (laughs) and thank (laughs) you, that like it hits the sexual brakes. It shuts things down just a little bit. And the less trust there is, the more the brakes come on.
0: So let's head over to the central part of the matrix, what I call the soup. I feel like we're situated down here in the lower portion of the matrix, the hormones, and the neurotransmitters, the mind, spirit, emotions, community arena, when we're talking about sexual pleasure, what else did you learn about the brain in relation to sexual pleasure that you were most excited about?
1: For me, it really comes down to the dual control model. This is a model of sexual response in the brain developed by Eric Janssen and John Bancroft at the Kinsey Institute around the turn of the 21st century. Mm-hmm. It's called the dual control model. So it says that the sexual response has two parts to it. Kind of like, you know, every other system in the central nervous system, there's a coupling of an accelerator or a gas pedal right. and a brake. Yep. Right? Sympathetic and parasympathetic. back like, loops. Mind-blowing. What if sex just works like everything else in the Brain. right right so the sexual accelerator is the one most of us are already familiar with it scans the environment all the time subconsciously including right now looking for anything sex related and it sends the turn on signal then also in parallel there's a sexual break noticing all the good reasons not to be turned on right now this is everything you see hear smell touch taste or and this is crucial imagine think feel or believe Mm. and it sends the turn off signal all the good all the potential threats in the world and even though a lot of the mainstream advice around sexuality is if you're struggling with arousal desire pleasure orgasm any of those things add more stimulation to the accelerator with role play and porn and lube and toys, and those are great. If you like them, go ahead and try them. But it turns out when people are struggling, it's much more often because there's too much stimulation to the brake, not because there's not enough stimulation to the accelerator. So when we can figure out what's hitting the brake, And see if there's anything on that list that we have any control over. Like, what can we get rid of? If you're distracted by grit on the sheets, change the sheets. If you're like lying in bed with your partner and things are getting started and you're still worried about the dishes in the sink, have your partner just go finish the dishes so that you feel cared for and attended to and your partner comes up and you
0: feel really connected with them because they've helped to like manage your life together. I love that that way of looking at it where we can look at what's hitting the brakes. And for a lot of us as clinicians, what might be hitting the brakes is physiological as well as psychological. Can you just talk into that a bit? If there's pain or discomfort in the body itself, like what do we do about those kind of breaks First physiologically, and then maybe we can head over to the left side of the matrix, the story and think about the psychological.
1: Actually, the interventions for pain are this beautiful combination of, like, physiological practice and changing the storytelling. Mm. Um, Pain is pretty common. When I ask people who treat sexual pain and say, who should I send people to? When I get asked about sexual pain, they say the Herman Wallace foundation pelvic pain organization you find the physical therapists who specialize in doing this work there are evidence-based interventions i really feel like physical therapy is the future of treating sexual pain uh, as opposed to like medication or pharmacological interventions physical therapy is proving to be a really powerful intervention and the reason is that there's a very wide range of sexual pain disorders um, with a wide range of causes but very few of them come with tissue damage Mm -hmm. A lot of the pain people experience is associated with a prior trauma Mm. as opposed to there being still tissue damage remaining in the genitals. It's that their brain has gotten hypersensitized and learned to associate any stimulation to the genitals with a danger experience. You know, like for example, childbirth is like massive phenomenon that happens to a person's body uh, when they go through the birthing process, whether they give vaginal birth or not their body experiences a whole lot of stuff and their body learns through this profound experience to interpret genital sensations as threat, as like something really not okay is happening and we need to like send you pain signals so that you stop and protect yourself. So the physiological treatment process is exposure, systematic desensitization kind of things where you learn to experience those sensations and relax and realize that you are safe and nothing bad is happening, which is where we get to the storytelling piece of it where uh, it's really easy with pain to have a panic response. Mm -hmm. That's what pain is for, is to make you go, oh, no, something's wrong. I need to do something to fix the problem. And so you... Learn And when you're working with a really good physical therapist, they're going to be great at educating yes. these things. But if you're like thinking about the I really love the explain pain workbook as a resource for clinicians to give to clients and patients as like a shortcut to understanding how pain works and learning to take control, the explain pain protocol really parallels the dual control model actually because it's sims and dims the safety in me signals and the danger in me signals figuring out what your brain is responding to that makes this sensation painful in this context and not painful in that other context the authors are Laura Moseley and David Butler.
0: We will link to that in the show notes. And we'll also link to my podcast with Jessica Drummond, who is a physical therapist in this area. So she can illuminate some of that yeah, work more, which I'm a details. huge fan of as well. So it sounds like the physiological, I mean, I wouldn't disagree. I'd never disagree. The physiological and the psychological are intricately connected. That's what we yes. have going on in the nervous system. But it was really illuminating for you to say that that there's really, there's not that much indication of tissue damage. It's more about the nervous system or the pain sensation and the associations that could have been triggers in somebody's life.
1: Yeah, when there is tissue damage, say there's a severe infection that lasts a long time and a person experiences pain with that, you can treat the infection and you aren't necessarily, even though you're healing the ultimate cause of the pain, the pain may linger long past the infection.
0: Right. Yeah. So let's flip the conversation and talk about the benefits of sexual pleasure to the entire nervous system, the body. What are these benefits that are evidence based? So we know
1: for sure that part of it is that when a person uh, can access pleasure, that's an indication that a whole lot of other things are going well Mm. in their lives, Uh, because pleasure doesn't exist in a brain that feels threatened and unsafe. In order to access pleasure, you need to create the context that allows your brain to experience pleasure. So we know that their relationship has got to be pretty okay. We know that their connection with their body, their body image, their capacity to even receive the sensations that their body is sending up is functional. And for a lot of people, I'm sure you know, they're just living from the neck up and aren't aware of the sensations. In the book we wrote together, my sister and I talk about a phenomenon we call human giver syndrome, Mm -hmm. which is where a person, particularly a person who gets gender socialized feminine, is raised to believe that it's their moral duty to be pretty, happy, yet calm, generous and attentive to the needs of others. And if they fail in any way or fall short of this ideal, then they deserve to be punished. And if there's no one around to punish us, if we fall short, then we'll just go ahead and beat the crap out of ourselves. <laughs> right. We and when this Yeah. when this shows up in our sexuality... Uh, and we believe it's our job to like conform to a specific body shape and size and standard. It's our job to meet our partners' needs without any reference to our own sexual needs or what pleasure even feels like in our bodies. I really recommend that people practice masturbation as a kind of meditation mm-hmm. where, They learn what pleasure even feels like in their bodies so that when they get into a sexual situation with another person, their brain's going to go to caretaking because that's how we were raised. That's what's appropriate for us to do. And your partner, who hopefully thinks your pleasure is important, is going to be touching you in a certain way. And they're going to say, do you like that? And when you were raised as a human giver, like, what does your answer have to be? The only correct answer is, "Mm mm-hmm. For a lot of people, especially women, they don't even know what the correct answer is. All they know is that they have to say yes or they risk hurting their partner's feelings. So being able to practice touching your own body and feeling what pleasure feels like when you're by yourself builds that connection between what's going on in the peripheral nervous system and the brain's capacity to receive pleasure signals and to send pleasure out to the rest of you in the feedback loop builds up this strong relationship so that even when you're in the distracted and more complex situation of sex with another person, at least you know the answer to the question even if you still feel like you have to say, "Mm -hmm." mm-hmm, you can go, "Mm mm-hmm, and then also say, you know what I would really love, oh, I'd really love it if you did this, because you know, finally, yeah, what your body you know,
0: likes. I love that you use that phrase, masturbation as meditation. It's beautiful, and I've really enjoyed listening to you talk on other podcasts about the human giver syndrome. You do it so well, and I know you've said it's not necessarily always relegated to the female. That these could be no. roles that we are taking on in different gender roles. And I was going to ask you. I mean, I know gender is complex and a continuum of sorts, but how does the male male male, female brain, if we're going to think in a polarity, differ in relationship to sexual pleasure?
1: There's very little evidence of a real biological difference in the ways our brains respond to the sexual world. And we may never know what differences there are, if they're innate, or if they're like, we'll never know. Yeah. Uh, But As adults, as people who get raised in a particular gender, as adults, it does tend to be true that women's sexual response is more sensitive to context. So, like, If you measure a thousand men and a thousand women, on average, the thousand men, their average score of sensitivity of the accelerator is gonna be higher, and the average score of the brakes for the women is gonna be higher. There is a lot of overlap. This is a population level description, so this does not mean every woman has a less, there are women with really insensitive brakes, there are men with really insensitive accelerators and vice versa, with high sensitivity. But at the population level and the stories we tell, which of course influence the way our brains respond to the sexual world, are about the ways women need to protect and guard and always be the barrier and the one saying no. And men are supposed to always want sex and always be ready and want whatever sex is available to them no matter what.
0: So my final question for you, Emily, and it's such a good conversation, I could go on and on, but my final question is, in speaking to clinicians of all sorts, are there questions that you think we should be including on our intake forms and broaching with our clients and patients so that we're getting into this realm that you were talking about so beautifully about ability to even experience pleasure?
1: I think the most important thing for me is the questions we skip over and don't, like it doesn't tell you anything particularly to know how frequently a person Mm -hmm. is having sex or to know about orgasm. The question you want to ask is whether or not they like the sex they're having. There's a sex researcher and therapist named Peggy Kleinplatz. She has a book coming out next year called Magnificent Sex. I can't wait till everyone can read it, but she studied 75 people who self-identify as having extraordinary sex lives. And these are not people who have very frequent sex. They're not necessarily people who have, like, wild adventurous types of sex. They're neither monogamous nor in open relationships. But they are people who have really strong trust, a friendship, at the foundation of their relationship with their sex partners. And they create a context where they can have sex they actually like. We tend to think about desire as the major clinical thing to look at. That, forget desire. Desire does not belong anywhere in the conversation. It's not about whether or not you want or crave or long for sex. It's whether or not people like the sex they are having. If they enjoy the sex, if it is, as Peggy Kleinplatz puts it, sex worth wanting. Mm. Mm. When the pleasure comes first, the desire will follow.
0: Beautiful. I love this. And I think it's something we can all take home and think about or not home wherever we're having sex and really bring into our clinics and our clinical interventions, but also be thinking for ourselves and our own health, happiness and pleasure. Thank you, Emily. Thank you. The 15-Minute Matrix is brought to you by me, Andrea Nakayama, and the Functional Nutrition Alliance. The 15-Minute Matrix team includes music by my son, Gilbert Nakayama, and Carla Schaefer on sound production, as well as Renee Hunt, Natalie Merrill, and Christine Shook. You can always visit us and hear more episodes at 15minutematrix.com. And if you want us to notify you each time there's a new podcast episode ready, just head over to 15minutematrix.com forward slash notify. We'll be sure to drop into your inbox with a super short reminder that a new episode is ready and waiting for you. Plus, I'd love to hear from you. How do you like the podcast? What would you like to hear mapped on the 15-Minute Matrix? Is there an expert you'd like me to interview? go ahead and email us at ask at 15minutematrix.com.